Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We're going to start today with a quiz. You're going to hear two clips of music, and you'll notice there's a big difference between them. So what's the difference? Okay, first clip. Here's the second clip. What's the difference? If your answer is that they're different instruments, you're right. The first was the violin, second was the piano. Both pieces were actually by Bach. But the most important difference may be this. You were listening to two very different brains. The pianist was Ellen Grimaud. The violinist was Itzhak Perlman. You could look at his brain in a scanner and know or make a pretty good guess that he's a violinist because the motor cortex actually reshapes itself so much that, that I could tell with the naked eye just looking at it like, oh, this looks like a violinist. As opposed to a pianist who uses both hands in great detail, I can tell a pianist in, in a brain scan. That's David Eagleman. He's a professor of neuroscience at Stanford University. He says that what we've long neglected to understand is how tremendously our brain reshapes itself in response to our actions. And so in this way, brains come to, you know, be experts at whatever you're giving it or whatever you're feeding it. And by the way, I think this is important when we think about what we do with our times and what kind of shows and information we consume and uh, the, the habits that we set for ourselves. In his book, Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain, Eagleman writes about a concert that Perlman once gave. At the end of the concert, one of the attendees says to him, I would give my life to play like that. Perlman responds, I did. What this tells us is that with this equipment we have upstairs, it gets shaped and modified by what we do. So in theory, you could play like Perlman too if you devoted eight hours a day from your childhood till now doing that. The brain is shaped by relevance, by what is important to you, and by what you spend your time on. Eagleman says we don't, actually we can't, build hardware this way. So that let's say the more you use your cell phone for one thing, the more it adapts to being used for that thing. But that's the way our brains work. And if you're shaking your head right now thinking, well, yeah, even if I did give my life to playing like Itzhak Perlman, I still wouldn't. I hear you. And we'll get back to that. Eagleman argues that the degree to which our brain can change and reshape itself is often vastly underestimated. So consider this thought experiment. Let's say you were born 100,000 years ago. Would you be you? You have to assume your eyes are the same color, your hair is the same, because this is you. This is your DNA. Gosh, I don't, if you look at an alligator from 100,000 years ago, it would really be the same. It would be indistinguishable from a, from a modern alligator. You couldn't tell any difference. But if you compare a human now in 100,000 years ago, there's so much difference because we have built up this, this culture um, that we ride on top of now. Baby alligators and zebras, they get up to speed quickly on things like swimming and walking. Zebras generally start walking within an hour after they're born because their knowledge is hardwired. Newly born people, by contrast, are not initially up on how to do all the basic things they need to do to stay alive. Instead, Eagleman argues, we are products of a trick of Mother Nature. 
the idea that a half-made brain, though in need of a lot of support at first, could actually, ultimately, pay off big time. What we get to do is absorb everything around us, our culture, our language, the beliefs of people around us. And we learn so much that we can then springboard off the top of what every human has learned before. So when you're a baby born in 2021, you get to say, oh, okay, we've already discovered quantum mechanics and transportation and the vaccines and everything. Okay, great. I'm going to start from there and then learn the next things. He says the gamble is that growing humans are going to get the love, the knowledge, and the nurturing they need. I told some stories in the book about some children. Happily, these cases are very rare. But, you know, children who are so neglected and abused, they don't get the proper touch and speech and attention and love. And they grow up with with very deep problems. Their brains don't develop correctly because essentially Mother Nature says, I'm going to put that out into the world and, you know, and expect that input will be there. So if this is a story about inputs, not really about DNA, let's go back to the question we were asking before. If you were born 100,000 years ago, would you be you? Yeah, the genetics are the same, but the input is totally different. And as a result, you would be a completely different person. Obviously, you'd speak a different language and so on. You'd have a different diet, which might change your height and so on. But but who, you, how you think about things, it's sort of a trick question, right, to even ask it because to even call it you, it's not you at all because so much of who we are is our inputs and, and the people that surround us. A hundred thousand years ago, your religious beliefs would almost certainly be different, especially if you're part of a religion that was only created in the last few thousand years. But there's lots of things that you intuitively understand, and you build your life around this, that ancient you would not get. Like, would you believe that you can catch invisible viruses through the air? Would you believe that our bodies are made up of cells? Would you know why people have twins? Would you think it was good to treat those who aren't in your group with respect? Probably no to all of those things. The essence of you, Eagleman argues, it's not your zebraness or your inherent alligatorness. It is the inputs that flow to your brain. You change those inputs, and you just aren't really you anymore. So what inputs do you think made Itzhak Perlman the way he is? I played the flute when I was in school, and anybody who has played an instrument knows some people are a lot better, seemingly naturally better, than other people. And it's why some of us stop practicing in frustration. Eagleman says, look, this is a complicated dance. Even very slight talents, even very slight differences in brains, they get built on, they get rewarded, they get noticed, they shape your sense of yourself, and then sometimes, like building a wall brick by brick, they put you on the path to greatness. So it turns out that we all drop into the world with slightly different genomes, and that gives us different skills at things. So for example, I would love to be a good swimmer like Michael Phelps, but he just has a larger wingspan than I do. There's no way I could swim as well as he does. And along any axis that you measure, you find a distribution. So whether it's skill at, at chess or flute or soccer or whatever, there's just going to be a natural distribution based on you know, what your genes program into the world. 
But from there, it's all about the experiences that you have. And so interestingly, the nature versus nurture debate is totally dead in science because it's always both. You have this very rich interaction between the genes that you come to the table with and then what happens to you during your lifetime. And, and these things feed back on each other. So just as an example, the experiences that you have in life can feed back not only into the structure of your brain and the fine structure and the fine details, but all the way back to the genome in terms of which genes are getting expressed. This is a field called epigenetics, and it's the way that your experiences actually change which genes are getting suppressed and which ones are getting you know, expressed more. So nature and nurture are so intertwined that they're, they're, you're unable to take them apart. So how do you help people think through that? I mean, you, you have this example that you write about that I had actually heard about before um, because a writer had told me about it when they were making a completely different point. But it was it's about three sisters who became just amazing at chess. Um, maybe you can talk about that, but I... I then wonder, again, how you think through this idea of how much do we just say, eh, well, I guess that person's a good flutist. And how much do we say, no, no, it's really determined, like, you need to get in there and practice. What's clear is that you need to get in there and practice because you cannot become a Perlman or a great flutist without the 10,000 hours of practice. That said, there, yeah, there are genetic predispositions that some people might have. The story is about the Polgar sisters who all became world champions at chess because their father loved chess and raised them from the time they were little girls to play this all the time. And so the question I think that you're getting at is what was their genetic predisposition? They're obviously smart kids, but then what their diet was, their intellectual diet of being fed chess, that's what made them great chess players. Had their father, instead of chess, loved whatever, crossword puzzles or pole vaulting or something else, presumably <laughs> they could have you know, become good at that too because he fed it to them so much. But it happened that they loved it and it became relevant to them because a big part of brain plasticity, that's you know, the, the, the changing of the brain, the reconfiguration of it, has to do with what is relevant. And a large part of that has to do with what you're getting social feedback for. So, so if your father gives you love and attention because you made a good chess move, that's meaningful to you. And then you go it out matters, in the world yeah. and people are patting you on the back and giving you little trophies and stuff like that. That's meaningful to you. One of the stories that I mentioned in the book was about the Williams sisters, the Venus and Serena Williams, the great tennis players. And I said, what if they had had a brother, Fred Williams, uh, this hypothetical brother who did the same number of hours of training at tennis that they did, but for whatever reason, he hated tennis. He didn't like it. He didn't get the right social feedback for it and so on. And the answer is his brain would not change to become a tennis playing machine the way that their brains changed because you actually need the right sorts of incentives, the relevance for you. You write about this idea of plasticity, um, and I do think that that's a word that a lot of people have heard in the last few years, this kind of notion that our brains are plastic, they can change. How much does that idea, I wonder, like how much does it get right, and how much do you think it discounts the reality? Yeah, okay, interesting question. So, so brain plasticity is the term that we use in the field, but what I suggested in the book is that I think it might be time for an update to that term because... It was coined 100 years ago by William James, and 
he was impressed with plastic manufacturing, which is, you know, so if I'm making a plastic toy or a bowl or something, I can mold the plastic into shape and then it holds that shape. That's what we love about the, that's what we love about plastic. It holds on to that shape and the toy doesn't melt uselessly back to a lump of plastic. And so he said, that's what the brain is like. It gets this experience and it changes its shape. But the reason I think the term, maybe we need something better is because The brain is made up of 86 billion neurons. These are the specialized cell type in the brain. And each of these has about 10,000 connections with its neighbors. So you've got something like 0.2 trillion connections in the brain. And every moment of your life, these are changing. They're changing the strength of their connection with other neurons, where they're unplugging and they're seeking and they're replugging into other neurons. For, For me and you and all the people listening right now, there are sentences that have gone back and forth where you've thought, oh, that's interesting. And that changes your brain in a little bit. Or, or just, mm. you know, when you learn that my name is David, there's a change in the physical structure of your brain that holds mm. on to that information. So the point is you're a different person than you were even 20 minutes ago. I'm Kara Miller talking with David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist and a professor at Stanford. We're going to be back in just a minute to talk more about the brain and learning and the pandemic's effect on how we think. You can grab our whole conversation on Apple Podcasts, where you can find our segments every week. From GBH and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. If you're interested in how we learn, the story of a little boy named Matthew offers a rather incredible lesson. When he was three, Matthew fell down, unresponsive. His family took him to the doctor, but it seemed like nothing was wrong. Maybe this was an aberrant situation. Except these incredibly frightening episodes kept happening, and he was unresponsive. He was often frozen in place. His mom and his dad were panicked. So um, this was a child who had something called Rasmussen's encephalitis, but it's, a, it's an epilepsy that affects an entire half of the brain. David Eagleman is a professor of neuroscience at Stanford, and he's the author of the book Live Wired, the inside story of the ever-changing brain. And so his parents took him to a series of doctors, tried to figure out what they could do about it. And it turns out really the only useful thing for a child with this disease is to remove half of the brain. It's called a hemispherectomy. You remove a hemisphere of the brain. And you can imagine what this is like for a parent to think about putting their child through that. Eagleman says, if you have this operation before the age of about six, you're mostly fine. Because in humans, unlike in other animals, the brain is unfinished when you're born. And it spends a lot of time adjusting to the world and the situations that you surround it with. So kids who have half their brains removed end up, amazingly, not too different from other kids. The brain that's left simply adjusts to meet the kids' needs. They cognitively can do everything that a kid can do with a full brain. They tend to have a slight limp on the other side of their body, but otherwise they're fine. And this is so remarkable to me to see these sorts of surgeries because... What it indicates is the remarkable flexibility of this three-pound magical organ that we have in our skulls, because you can't do this with technology that we build now. So for example, I can't tear half the circuitry out of my laptop or out of my cell phone and expect it to still function. 
But with brains, you can do this. Why? Because it's a type of technology that we don't yet know how to build. That's neither, you know, it's not just hardware or software. It's what I call liveware. In Eagleman's own lab at Stanford, he started asking questions about how far you could take this mental flexibility. Could we actually substitute one sense for another? So, for example, if somebody is deaf, can we feed auditory information into their brain, not through their ears, but through a different thing? And so my student and I built a vest with vibratory motors all over it. And when there's sound, the vest is picking up the sound and translating that to patterns of vibration on the skin. And deaf people can learn how to hear through their skin. The vest was then turned into a wristband that offered the same sort of vibrations, but was easier to slip on and off. But if hearing through your skin sounds like a sci-fi movie that hasn't yet come out, consider this. The brain is locked in silence and darkness, and all it ever sees are these little electrical spikes. That's all it ever has. It doesn't know if it's coming from ears or skin or whatever. So it figures out how to use it. So it starts as touch, I would say, and then it becomes hearing. I mean, the, the remarkable part is that when I ask people, let's say after they've been wearing it for three or four months, I say, what is it like when you hear the dog bark? Do you feel a buzz on your wrist and you think, okay, that must be a dog bark. And then you look around, you see the dog and they say, no, I'm just, I'm just hearing it. I'm just hearing the dog bark in, in the same way that when, when you hear my voice, you don't think, oh, okay, let's see. I'm hearing Eagleman say some low frequency and some high and some medium. Instead, you just feel like you hear my voice. If you've ever wanted to relay a funny story to a friend, but you couldn't remember whether you first heard that story when somebody told it to you or when you read it, you understand the principle that Eagleman is working with. Brains care about meaning. They don't really care whether that meaning comes in through the ears or through vibrations or Morse code or reading something on a page. The main point is that the story that you wanted to tell your friend is funny, and everything else is details. Eagleman says our ability to pull meaning out of so many different inputs is a testament to how flexible our brains are and how much power we have to shape them. Which brings us back to Matthew, who underwent surgery to have half his brain removed. Oh, he survived. He thrived. Yeah, he has a job. I mean, actually, there are many children with um, with hemispherectomies. The point is you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't have any way of knowing that the person you're talking to has had half their brain removed because the remaining real estate has rewired to take care of all the functions. For a more mundane example of our brain being rewired, take language. At six months old, Japanese and American babies will both respond to R and L sounds. But by their first birthday, the Japanese baby no longer responds to differences in those sounds because the difference between R and L is not pronounced in Japanese, and their brain is wiring itself differently than the American baby's brain. Whatever language you're exposed to carves the landscape of how you interpret things. So for example, when we're speaking, if I say, you know, the sound of an E, but maybe I have a funny accent where I draw my E's out a little bit, or my E's very clipped or whatever, it doesn't matter to you. You say, oh yeah, he's saying E, and so essentially, if you think of it like a landscape, you have kind of a big basin for catching E's and they all flow down to the middle where you interpret it as, oh, okay, that was an E. 
And depending on the language you're exposed to, the landscape of where those basins are is totally different. Yeah, and so for a Japanese baby, R and L become merged into one basin because that just doesn't matter. And just just to be clear, How just so it, everyone understands, yeah. which is if you swap, the, if you took the American baby and raised him in Japan and the Japanese baby here, it would be exactly the opposite. It's nothing genetic. It's just it's just a matter of experience of what carries meaning yeah, in your yeah, language. Right. So, what does this all tell you about education and how we approach it? I know you've thought to some degree about education, what the model should be. I mean, so much of what you're talking about sort of adds up to this question of what we learn, how do we learn it, when do we start learning it, what's learnable, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you something. I mean, I have a lot of views about education, but I'll tell you something which is I'm I'm pretty optimistic about where we are, which is to say, because of the internet. And so almost every parent I talk to is really worried about the internet. And they think about, they talk about all the ways in which this is gonna ruin our kids. I think exactly the opposite. When we grew, I don't know exactly how old you are, Kara, but when, when I grew up, um, you know, I just had my hometown teacher in this little place where I had grown up. And when I wanted to know something, my mother would drive me down to the library and I'd pull out the Encyclopedia Britannica and hope that the article they had wasn't, you know, too old and so on. And, and that's how I got education on things. But there's so much available education now. Whenever my kids are curious about something, they ask Alexa, they ask Google, they get the answer right in the context of their curiosity. That matters because that's when the brain is most flexible is when you are curious about something. So when you get the answer right when you're wondering about it, that's when you get real live wiring going on. We grew up getting a lot of just-in-case information, like just in case you ever need yeah, yeah. to know when the Battle of Hastings was, it was 1066. But kids now <laughs> are getting, are getting a, a lot of just-in-time information, and that is the greatest thing that can happen for the brain because then you actually make those changes and um, because of their curiosity. And so the, the other thing is that kids are no longer stuck with whoever their homeroom teacher happens to be, but instead they can, you know, they want to know about something, they go to watch a TED talk where the best person in the world is giving the best 15 minute talk of their lives. And that's who their teachers are, are the best people on the planet for whatever subject they're interested in at that moment. So I think all of this adds up to a sort of prediction I have, which is that the next generation is going to be a lot smarter than we are. A final question for you. Um, you know, when you think about a year of people being in their homes. We've obviously been in our homes a lot more for the last year, most of us, um, and uh, been on devices a lot more and Zoom a lot more and Zoom school and everything. Um, do you feel like, I mean, we were talking before how just this conversation is changing both of our brains, changing the brains a little bit of the people who hear it. Well, What's happened over the last year? It seems like that's a much bigger experience in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Has the pandemic changed our brain? Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the thing is, it's hard to know how to compare this because whatever we did for the last year would have changed our brain. It's just the pandemic has changed our brain in a different direction. It's been really tough on everybody. I worry about what this is going to be for um, many different age groups. But, you know, one of the issues is just that 
everybody has become so cautious about other people. And, you know, you see other people walking on the sidewalk and you mm. cross over to the other side of the street and so on. I think for adults, this won't be too terrible. But for the, for the young children growing up, I'm afraid that it's going to change a lot about how they interact with other people, how they, you know, do or don't share food, how they do or don't hug and kiss on the cheeks and so on. So there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of downsides to this. I will say one thing, though. There is a small, small silver lining to this, which is in terms of brain plasticity. So as I mentioned, when you're an adult, you've got a pretty solid internal model of how the world operates. And what's happened to all of us over the last 11 months is that that model broke down and we had to refigure out so much stuff about how the world operates. And even in minor ways, we've done lots of stuff, you know, figured out how to use online ways to get food or to have meetings with people or to just change everything about the way we operate. And that is really good for the brain. It's one of the best things that you can do for the brain is to challenge it, is to challenge your models and the assumptions that you have. And in fact, when it comes to things like people retiring, the worst possible thing that can happen to them is that their lives shrink. This is unfortunately the typical thing that happens. Their lives shrink and they end up watching TV and and they have fewer and fewer friends and so on. And they go into mild cognitive impairment and eventually into dementia. But the people who stay cognitively strong till their dying day are the ones who constantly challenge themselves. They're doing social things. They have responsibilities and chores. They're learning new games and tasks and things like that. Those people do much, much better in terms of dementia. There's a there's a long-term study of nuns in convents who all donated their brains when they passed away. And it turns out that some fraction of those nuns had Alzheimer's disease and their brains were getting physically chewed up with the disease, but they didn't show any of the cognitive deficits of it because they were in a convent and they were socially active and, you know, challenged till the till the day they died. And so that's the that's the single silver lining is that we've uh, had an opportunity to to try to rethink to have to rethink everything about the world around us. David Eagleman is a neuroscientist. He teaches at Stanford University and is the author of Live Wired: The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain. David, thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. And if you want to read about some of the topics that we've discussed, from the Polgar sisters, who all turned out to be amazing chess players, to the miraculous surgical procedure called a hemispherectomy, we've got more on all that at our website, innovationhub.org.